You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider, Brandon Jaggers, and me, C.C. Broadus. Everybody, welcome to Auxiliary Gate number 102. It's April 18th, Monday, and Alan Schneider is joining me once again. Alan, it's been a cool day in the bluegrass. It's deceptively cold the last two days, man. I'm just I keep thinking it's time to roll, start getting a little running action in, getting some uh, yard work done. It's too damn cold every day, but uh, as you know, we got to get this thing warmed up here in a couple of weeks because there's Derby's fun. A cold, wet derby's no fun. Not as much fun, I should say. So we got we got to make sure we uh we get that taken care of. You know, it just popped into my mind. Is Thunder Over Louisville still a thing? Is that? Oh yeah, yeah. That's... Well, you know, there's uh there's issues with downtown Louisville at times. I'm, I'm not gonna lie about that, but it's still a thing. It's this weekend. Uh, I'm getting so to the age now where I don't go as off as often anymore. I don't want it to be as heavily populated as it has been in years past. But weather's supposed to be nice. 75 degrees or so. And I'm my friend Michelle Ingram, who better be listening to this today. I know she's going to go. Oh, if for those people out there, there's probably people listening from, I don't know, other areas. Thunder of Louisville, uh, in fairness, is, is amazing. And I know everybody talks about their fireworks show. This fireworks show is, is honestly impressive. I mean, they light, they, they light a bridge up. You can, you can feel the fireworks in your rib cage, but if you're down near the river, you can see it for miles. It's, it's an extraordinary event. In its heyday, they'd get three quarters of a million people down there on a river. I don't know if it's going to be the case this year, but the weather may help out with it. You know what? This, this city does do Derby right. I got to say that. Now, really fast, let's uh, recap the weekend's stake act, stakes action in the Bluegrass State at Keeneland. Over the weekend, it was the Stone Street Lexington Stakes. The last chance for three-year-olds to get into the Derby won by Tawny Port. Brad Cox, just uh, two weeks removed, right, from winning the spiral. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, from finishing second. It is the bomb in the spiral stakes. Doesn't uh, doesn't that sort of solidify, you know, my my notion that Tis the bomb is an underrated racehorse who is an X factor in the Derby and who will be on my tickets. Does that not uh, strengthen Tis the bomb? Is this Tis the bomb needs any more uh, strength? He's got one of the best resumes in the field. Yes, there's a surface issue, but doesn't Tony Ports? Coming back in two weeks to beat a pretty solid Lexington field, doesn't that kind of strengthen Tis the Bomb a little bit? You know, as, as the pundits say, it franks his form. Yes. For uh, sure. But uh, I, I've said there's three horses that will be on the, the top end of my ticket on Derby Day. That's, that's Epicenter, that's Sandon, that's Tis the Bomb. Uh, going back to the Lexington, uh, Tony Poor, I thought Tony Poor was much the best, right? Uh, I thought in due time ran kind of a bizarre race. I thought the horse would be on the lead kind of drop back and look kind of hopeless and then kind of come rallying again inside. It was a weird, weird race by in due time. Didn't you think so? Absolutely. Well, I thought, yeah, I thought he was a prime contender anyway. I, he was I did too. I thought he was the one to beat. Yeah. I quit watching him and then, cause I thought he was hopelessly beaten and all of a sudden he actually a fairly close third. It was, it was a weird run, but the, sometimes those short run rate, those short turn races, it can, can provide some, some weird, 
some weird scenarios. But uh, at the end of the day, Tawny Port was much less. And I'll tell you a horse that I've been high on since last year that ran really well was Major General. And I think it actually strengthens Tawny Port because when Major General's on his game, as he finally regained his old form, you don't head Major General. I was concerned when Major General got the lead that that horse is so dead game. And nobody talks about this. Nobody talk, that Major General won't let you buy. If he, can, if he can get in front, he doesn't let you buy. It happened both those wins last year. So for Tawny Port uh, to go by him fairly easily, I think it says a little bit more about Tawny Port. So big run by Major General, bigger run by Tawny Port. Uh, Tawny Port is a definite exotic uh, used to me on Derby Day. And, of course, we want to mention our friend Michelle Lovell, whose mare changed the control, finished fourth, a closing fourth, uh, mm-hmm. in a tough race, the Giants Causeway behind the Wesley Ward train Campanelle, who's going overseas to Royal Alaska. So, uh, but uh, change control, big race. Yeah, you know, it's dropped pretty far back, but it's Michelle's running the same problem that I know of Sarah Hamilton and a lot of other people run to. Wesley Ward's winners have come to run, right, at this chemo meet. I mean, some of the babies haven't done that much, but everybody else seems to have, have run really well, right? And Campanelle blew them off the track. And, you know, Michelle got stuck chasing Golden Powell last week, right? 20 and 3, 44 and 3, finally a horse come around from the outside, stalk from the outside, it's going to be able to hold up with that. So Wesley may not be as such a president as Churchill, so we'll see if she can't rebound a little bit with these uh, two awesome racehorses. Speaking of Sarah Hamilton, she's got an entry in on Thursday? Thursday. Wednesday or Thursday? Against two Wesley Ward horses. <laughs> yeah, the Crackalack. Against two Wesley Ward horses. But this is a maybe a son or daughter of McCracken, who was a maybe was McCracken a Derby favorite. Uh, he was close. I, I don't. Th- I think he was vying for favoritism. I think he might have been single digits, high single digits. But you know, McCracken was kind of a miler, mile and eight, trying to get that mile and a quarter. And I, I want to say maybe eight, ten to one range. Don't hold me to that. It was really, really nice racehorse. And is this his first horse to run? Sarah's horse. This is his first crop, so probably probably is the first one to run. And who is uh, riding this uh, horse for uh, Sarah? The yeah. other half of the dynamic duel, right? It'd be Farron Peterson. Yeah. So if we brag about when we brag about our friends, uh, we're going to do it. This is our podcast. We like those people. We cheer for them. So there's other people too we cheer for, but we're pulling for Sarah and Farron come Thursday. Tough field. So. Like you said, when we were not recording, this is kind of a dead period as far as horse racing is concerned. Yes, we're all like in, in anticipation of the big day, uh, Oaks and, and Derby, of course. And uh, what we decided to do tonight, we've invited a guest on to talk about one of the uh, the, the one of I wouldn't call it wacky. Is this one of the most improbable? Yes, derbies that that, that in modern history that are one of the most improbable Derby winners in modern history and we're we're going to uh try our best to tell that story and uh, uh if you have any interest at all in in derby history uh, this this would be a this would be a good chapter hopefully in in that uh that story so yeah i'll just say this if you like the mind that bird story this and you know this has got mind that bird's got nothing on this racehorse right this is uh we're going a little bit further back in the day but part of the allure of the Derby is the history, and there's a lot of younger people that don't even know we used to have mutual fields in the Derby, right? They don't know a lot of stuff, so uh, this is a great story. There was It's going to be educational for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. 
So without further ado, let's bring our guest online right now. Our guest this evening is uh, no stranger to the story we're going to tell. He wrote a book about Canyon Arrow II, the winner of the 1971 Kentucky Derby that's available on Amazon right now. It's titled Canyon Arrow II, the rags to riches story of the Kentucky Derby's most improbable winner. In addition to that, our guest is Chronicle Touch Racing Legends, his dancer's image, Noor Ruffian. He's an author, attorney, and a photographer, as well as being a member of the editorial staff of the Blood Horse magazine. We'd like to welcome Milton Toby aboard the Auxiliary Gate podcast. Milton, how are you doing? Doing well. Th- thanks for the invitation to be on the show. So, Milt, uh, first of all, are, are you a Lexington native? Uh, no, from southern Kentucky, uh, Taylor County, Campbellsville. Uh, I'm a Kentucky native. I got you. So where do you live now? In Georgetown. In Georgetown. Okay, cool. Uh, I know that really well, Milt. I work at Toyota. I've been in Toyota for oh, okay. five years. So you, you I, I know you know where that's at. <laughs> yep. So you, you've also been involved at the University of Kentucky, right? Have you taught classes there, or, or what was your involvement with them? I haven't taught at UK. I've taught uh, a variety of equine law courses at the University of Louisville. They have a, an equine industry program in the College of Business. Okay. So I, I've taught there, and actually I, I just finished teaching a five-week online class about equine regulatory law for MBA-level students. Okay. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you've written books about Dancer's Image and Noor, Noor. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Noor or Noor, N-O-O-R. But it, yeah, it's, it's Noor. It's Noor. It's Noor, that's right. Okay. What, what's, uh, why, why, why did those subjects uh, – Attract your interest? That's a really good question. When I'm looking for something to write about, I try and find a story that people know a little bit about, but they don't really know what happened. And and for me, that, that's the perfect story because you've got people who are familiar a little bit with the story, but they they don't even know they need to know more about it. And that that's a good way to uh, to draw an audience. You know, with with Dancer's image, everybody knows he was disqualified, but nobody knows the backstory. You know, the the same with Newer, same with Canyonero, same with Shergar. Well, I I can't imagine a book that's more pertinent now than it, than at any point in the last fifty years was Dancer's image, uh, with the uh, the uh, the issues we're going through last year with Medina Spirit. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I did an article for Blood Horse last year that was sort of comparing the the legal tra- trail that the Dancer's Image folks took, you know, in 68. A lot of that is applicable to what's happening now with the Medina Spirit. You know, it's the same playbook. Am I correct? It took four years to finally determine forward pass as the winner of that derby? Yeah, it, it actually was a, It was closer to five, but it, it was a long time. Right. Okay. Yeah. How do you foresee the, the, the Medina spirit situation playing out? That's a good question too. I, I don't really know. Uh, you know, uh, Bafford and, and the stable owner, they've got enough money to keep this going as long as they want to. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. This, this probably going to draw out for a little bit, but, uh, we're not here to talk about that tonight. We want to talk about, uh, the 1971 Kentucky Derby, and that was won by Canyon Arrow II. Uh, like I said before, this is a remarkable, fascinating story. Uh, Milt, uh, I'm just going to pick it up 
in Kane and Arrow's yearling year. Prior to that, he, of course, he was foaled in 1968. He's a son of uh, Pretender, who was the runner-up in the prior year's Epsom Derby. Mm-hmm. He was sold for $1,200 at the Keeneland September sale, and he was eventually sold by a, a pinhooker to uh, Pedro Baptista in a package deal with some other yearlings. Uh, why don't you uh, – why don't you, could you take it from there? Sure. Yeah, he was – a very nondescript yearling. As you say, he's $1,200. That isn't very much now and wasn't very much then. And he wound up in Venezuela. But before he did that, he actually raced twice in the United States, which nobody really knows about, and didn't do very well here. So he wound up racing in Venezuela and did really well. At, at some point early in, in 1971, <clears throat> uh, Pedro Bautista had a dream that his deceased mother told him that he was going to win the Kentucky Derby with a horse named Canyonero. And, you know, he told his friends about that and everybody laughed, but he believed it. He, he was convinced that, you know, the fates were on his side. So, you know, he entered the horse and everybody continued to laugh at that. So you don't have a chance to win. So that, that's how all this got started. The horse was very good in, in Venezuela. He was trained by a, a good trainer named Juan Arias, and he was ridden at, at times by Juan Ar, uh, by Gustavo Avila, who was a very good international rider. So he had some things going for him. And in coming up to the Derby, he was the only horse that had run and won at a mile and a quarter. So he had some things you know, going his way, but they couldn't even get past performances for him here from the races in Venezuela. So nobody knew anything about him. And you know, I, I, in the book, I talked about him as being the most unlikely winner. And I didn't mean that he was the longest odds winner of the Derby. He wasn't, not even close. He was dismissed to the point that he was included in the field. So he, he wasn't a long shot really at all, but nobody knew him. Nobody expected anything of him, particularly considering the way he got here from Venezuela. It was a nightmare trip. He was on a plane from Caracas to Miami. The plane developed engine problems, turned around, came back to Caracas. They got another plane. That one didn't fare very well either. He finally wound up on a plane with livestock, chickens, that sort of thing. And got to Miami eventually. But it, as I say, it was a, a horrible trip. Horrible trip. And the paperwork wasn't correct to get him into the United States. So he spent uh, several days in quarantine in Miami without being able to work, you know, just stuck in a stall. So when he got to Kentucky, to Churchill Downs, although he was entered in the Derby, they didn't have a stall for him because they didn't think he would, was coming. You know, he was just one of the, you know, the hundreds of horses that are entered in the Derby that year. And it, it's vastly different from the way Churchill Downs is now because the people who went with him on the van, he took a van from Florida because they were afraid to fly him anywhere else because they had so much trouble. But when they got to the gate at Churchill Downs, the, none of the people who went with Canyon Arrow could speak English. And they couldn't find anyone on the backstretch who could speak Spanish. 
So things have changed a lot if you've been on a backstretch any time lately. But they're, they finally tracked down a guy from Puerto Rico who agreed to act as interpreter. And after a while, they found a stall for Canyonero. <clears throat> but he was in such poor condition. He'd lost almost 100 pounds and looked dehydrated. You know, he had a terrible coat. And you know, the trainer, Juan Arias, was very distressed about the condition of the horse. And if anything else could go wrong, you know, they were expecting it to. And, and Juan had an odd training pattern. He, he didn't train by a stopwatch like most of the American trainers were used to. He sent his horse out with a you know, 140-pound exercise rider without a saddle and did very, very slow works. So the press just ignored him. They, they totally ignored him. When there were, uh, you know, press conferences or pre-derby parties, nobody got invited from the Canyonero camp. And he was just, you know, a, a total outsider. Except in New York. In New York, he wasn't part of the field. And he went off at a uh, little better odds because of the, the Puerto Rican connection to New York City. But, you know, either way, he, he was unlikely. Nobody expected him to win except for Pedro Baptista and the jockey, you know, Gustavo Avila and Juan Arias. And the, the race itself, you know, 1971 was supposed to be a good year. You know, Hoist the Flag was the two-year-old champion. He would have been the odds-on favorite for the Derby, but he broke down. Several of the other prominent horses either weren't nominated, they were injured, they were held out of the race for future events. So we wound up with Canyonero, part of the field, and the race itself, for a while, you didn't even know Canyonero was in the race if you were watching on TV. He was so far back that the the TV screen, he was out of the frame. He was so far out of the races. But on the, the final turn, he rallied. You know, uh, Gustavo Avila got him moving. He charged up, caught forward pass. Um, I'm sorry. He didn't catch forward pass. That's the wrong race. <laughs> he charged up on the outside and won, one handily. They're in the stretch. The entry are at the park, that eastern fleet, Old and Able. Cannon Merrill, the second, is driving. Then unconscious. Then on the rail, moving up is Bull Reason. Cannon Merrill, the second, takes over the lead as they come to the wire. They're going to hit the finish, and it's the South American horse. Cannon Merrill, the second, wins the surprise winner. And that still wasn't good enough for his supporters. And it certainly wasn't good enough for his critics. They thought it was a fluke. And they thought that the field in the Derby wasn't very good. You know, one sports writer called it the worst Derby field in history. Uh, He just didn't get any respect at all. He did finally get some respect after the Preakness. He, he he made it to the Preakness barely. The the flight from Kentucky to Maryland for the Preakness had a number of the Derby horses in it, but uh, they didn't even include Canyonero on the the manifest because nobody expected him to do anything. So we wind up with him in the Preakness, you know, still a long shot. Nobody thinks he's got a a chance. To win here, you know, we've got a, a shorter track, sharp turns, you know, coming from behind horse doesn't work very well typically on a, a track like that. So again, he was ignored, ignored by the press. 
this time, although he had been you know, a very slow horse at the beginning of the Derby and really came from behind, he took off at the start and was on the lead throughout most of the race. And again, one-handedly. So now all of a sudden, we've got a potential Triple Crown winner that nobody expected. So what do you do? You're, you're the uh, the owner, the trainer. You know, the owner didn't even go to the Derby. His son went only because he sold his favorite car to get air, airplane fare. But now everybody shows up at, at the Preakness, and it, it's a party. It, it was a party in the U.S. It was a party in Venezuela. And he, he suddenly was an overnight national hero in, in Venezuela. People were dancing in the streets. And now we move on to the Derby, uh, the, to the Belmont Stakes in New York, Belmont Park. It was the largest crowd that had attended a Belmont Stakes up to that point. He was wildly popular now after being ignored for all his time in the, in the States, but he wasn't what doing well. He had some issues. He had a, a rash that was bothering him, which sounds a little bit like Medina's spirit. But he also had some hoof problems. He had thrush, which is an infection that is very painful. And the guess was, nobody knew for sure, but the guess was that this was something he had contracted initially back in Miami when he was in quarantine, and they weren't able to get his stall really clean. Because thrush tends to come about when you have a really dirty stall. <clears throat> so he wasn't in good shape. He missed a couple of very important works. And people were beginning to wonder whether it was a good idea to even run him because he just didn't look like himself. He didn't look, didn't look like he did before the Derby and before the Preakness. And the remarkable thing, you know, he looked awful when he arrived at Churchill Downs, but by the Derby, he looked good. You know, Arius had gotten him in good shape with the long, slow works and, you know, just taking really good care of him. But now all of a sudden he, his health was a concern again. Sports Illustrated even ran a cover story that said maybe he shouldn't run in the Belmont. And it, it turns out they were right. You know, he, uh, he didn't race the way he did in the Derby. You know, he looked like he was doing okay at the beginning, but he faded in the stretch. So the Triple Crown was gone. The, some of the large syndication offers were gone. And we wound up there with eventually he was sold after the Belmont, and then then the the story sort of breaks off there for a while. So anything that that you guys want to add about that? Anything else you need to know? Well, yeah, I'd like to go back uh, pre-Derby. Was it correct that he, from Miami, when he arrived in Miami, he had to wait four days in quarantine to get blood work run and then take a 20-hour van ride from Miami to Louisville? Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. And in, in the midst of all that, when the plane landed and they didn't have the right paperwork, you know, it was hot as blazes on the Miami tarmac, and he wound up spending several hours on the plane before they could even get him off and get him into quarantine. So he was in miserable shape. He was dehydrated. Uh, you know, he, like I said, his coat was really bad. He didn't look like a horse that you would even enter in the Kentucky Derby, let alone a horse that would win it. You know, he, he always worked very slowly, again, with a you know, 140-pound exercise rider. That was one of the reasons people kept laughing at him. You know, Juan Arias didn't care anything about a stopwatch. 
the mutual field became a thing of the past around maybe 1998, 1999. Yeah, uh, something like that. It's in that ballpark. Explain what the mutual field was to, to, to maybe uh, some rookies that, that are new to the game. The mutual field, for those who don't know, it's very similar to what we have right now in the Derby Future Pools, right? Uh, uh, the morning line maker, I guess that was Mike Battaglia back there, you would determine who the quote-unquote the worst horses in the field were. Uh, who he pr- predicted would be the longest shots in the field, and they would group they group them right into a pool. And let's say if you had 18 horses running, I think the meet, the top board went up to 14, right? So the 15, 16, 17, and 18 will all be part of the mutual field. If any of those won, you got all of them. They generally wouldn't go off at long prices because you got four for one or six for one. So you might have six horses who should be 60, 80 to one. You're getting for you know eight to one. Uh, that was the thing. That's the thing in the past. Now, I don't know if some of the younger folks know that, but that's what it used to be in the Derby, right, Milt? Yeah, exactly. And one of the problems was the paramutual equipment at the time wasn't really geared up for a large field. Yeah, and so and so. And in fairness, you could argue Canyon Arrow. I don't know what it, what the field's odds went off that day. I don't know off the top of my head. However, you could argue had he not been coupled in the field, he may have been a 60, 80, 200 to one shot. We just don't know, right? Right. Yeah, he could easily have been. He went off the the field went off eight to one for that derby. Yeah. It always went the field always went off eight to one. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah. Well, let me go on get back to the the derby for a second. There, there were one, two, three, four, five. There were six horses, seven horses in the field. Canyon Arrow won. The other field horses all finished at the end of the out of the running. They were the last horses <laughs> to come in. So, you know, the, the typical field horses don't run well, and in the derby, none of them did except Canyon Arrow. But yeah, you're right. They sold him to uh, King Ranch, and you know, the the King Ranch owner had seen Canyon Arrow and just loved him. He 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 thought that uh, you know Clayburg thought that he was a good horse, that he would have been a good horse, and th- there were no viable you know syndicate offers after he he failed in the Belmont. So you know they sold him, I think, for a million and a half to uh, Robert Clayburg, and he. He, they tried to keep him in training, but the the foot problem bothered him. You know, the, the rash bothered him. He wound up being laid up. In, in fact, oddly enough, he was laid up in the stall next to a hoist the flag, who was still recovering from his breakdown. So that was basically the end of his three year old year. Yeah. I have a, a, a question, real quick. When you get done there, Milt, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. Yeah, I, it got me thinking. Uh, the owner Batiste, I believe his name, right? Batista. Yeah, Batista uh, Pedro Batista. Pedro Batista. He has the the dream. His mother tells him his horse is going to win the Kentucky Derby. He's in Venezuela. You know, the minor leagues compared to here in the states, right? Mm-hmm. And how does you know going back? We have a point system now. How does someone from Venezuela say, "Hey, I'm going to run in the Kentucky Derby"? For those who don't know, how do you just say, "Hey, I'm going to up and enter my horse in the Kentucky Derby," and he's eligible? What's, was there criteria? Was it just, hey, if you want to run, you get to run? Do you know that? There wasn't the, the qualifying requirements then that we have now. Basically, you you called and entered, said, I want to enter my horse in the derby, and you're entered. <laughs> uh, they Must didn't really nice. know how to deal with things there, and the they wanted to enter in all of the Triple Crown races. And uh, – a friend of, of uh, Don Pedro's called the United States. They they finally tracked down. Oh my God, I can't remember his name. They they tracked down the uh, Chick Lang. Chick Lang. They they tracked down Chick Lang, 
And this was a guy who didn't speak a lot of English. And he said he wanted to, he had a horse he wanted to enter. And Chick Lang thought it was a joke. He thought his friends were playing, playing a joke. The, the caller from Venezuela didn't know how to spell the horse's name, didn't know how he was bred, didn't know anything about him. So Chick Lang said, okay, yeah, we'll enter him. And he wrote this down on a piece of paper and threw it away. <laughs> and then he thought about this for a while and said, well, you know, wait a minute. Maybe it wasn't a joke. You know, he was having lunch at, at Pimlico or, or in Florida somewhere. He thought, well, maybe it's not a joke. So he, he fished the piece of paper out of the trash can and called uh, the, the racing secretary at Churchill Downs, the racing secretary at Belmont Park, and the racing secretary at Pimlico and said, hey, I've, I've got a strange thing here. It's an entry from Venezuela. And they took the entry. That was all that was required. And yet at some point they paid the entry, whatever the entry fees was going to be. But yeah, it wasn't nearly as complicated as it is now with, you know, qualifying points and qualifying prep races. It and was a miracle yeah, he got in. Yeah, it's, and it really is. And it makes me wonder. So this horse takes this, this incredible journey from, from Venezuela to Miami to Louisville and he gets here and he's on the backstretch with a lot of blue bloods and a lot of old money and such. And, uh, you know, someone from the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks. I mean, how was Candy Narrow and his handlers? How were they, were they respected at all? Were they disrespected? Were they kind of scoffed at? How were they and the horse received once they got to the backside of Churchill Downs? Do you know that? They were largely ignored. Yeah. And when they weren't ignored, they were laughed at mm. because nobody had seen a person who trained horses the way Arias did. They, nobody had heard of the horse. They couldn't get past performances from Venezuela. And they, they either laughed at him or they ignored him. And the last laugh went to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do you feel like you've covered this? And, you know, we're in this age now of social media, you know, Candy and Arrow was the good old days. I wish we could get back to that. But everything is just so uh, in the magnifying glass these days and stuff. Everyone knows about the story about Mind That Bird. They know about some other things. It seems like Candy and Arrow's story has gotten lost over time. Uh, it did to me, and, I, and I'm somewhat of a pseudo-historian with the race. Is there a reason for that? Well, like I said earlier, I, I think it's because, you know, there was – we had Dancer's Image in 1968, and that was still going on. In 71, although nobody was paying a lot of attention to the dispute either. But I think that soured a lot of people on the Derby, first of all. And I also think that then the there was an issue about the time for the Preakness. And for a while, everyone thought Canyon Arrow had the, the track record at Pimlico. But still, then a couple of years later, you had Secretariat. Then three years, three or four years later, you had Affirmed in Seattle Slough. Mm-hmm. And he just got lost in the shuffle of the also-rans. Even though he won two-thirds of the Triple Crown, he didn't win the Triple Crown, and three other horses did. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think the whole story has gotten shuffled to the background. I don't think that would be the case now with all the social media, because there would be there would be way to get information about him today yes. that was unavailable in 1971. It kind of feels like perhaps this horse, uh, despite his great story, was a victim of the kind of the renaissance, the golden era of the 70s of horse racing, right? It seems like maybe he just came at the wrong time, and then all of a sudden here comes Secretariat. And then the and then Seattle. You're, you're right. It's spectacular. He'll have a spectacular bit after that. So, yeah, exactly. So, 
Yes, yeah, see, how about how about you? What do you got some questions here? Well, I, I just want to Milt to take us through uh, Canyon Arrows, the end of his career. He was sold to Key Ranch, like we mentioned before, for one point five million. Uh, Milt, why don't you talk about his four year old career? He didn't, pardon me, didn't have much of a four year old career. I mean, he he was. They got him back to the races. You know, Buddy Hirsch was a good, a very good trainer, and he got him to the races, but he wasn't winning anything. He wasn't doing well at all. And, but in August, August of 72, Hirsch and Clayberg decided that they would get uh, Gustavo Avila up there from Venezuela to ride the horse again because he had been successful and nobody else who was riding him was. And it was a, a stroke of genius. In the next race, he didn't win, but the race after that with Avila on board, it was a stymie handicap. And there was Canyon Arrow as a four-year-old, and there was uh, Raver Ridge, who was the, the current year derby winner. So we have two derby winners in the Stymie handicap. <clears throat> and Canyon Arrow closed out his real, his career. He, he raced a little after that, but this was clearly the high point. He beat Raver Ridge. It sort of vindicated Clayberg's confidence in the horse when he beat another derby winner. And he, he wound up, he, uh, he entered stud in, in the U.S., didn't do well at all, and wound up being shipped back to Venezuela, where he had a, a non-distinguished, to be kind about it, stud career there, and he died. You know, he died very early. But, you know, for what he was, you know, a $1,200 yearling, he had an amazing record, considering all the things that were going against him. Yeah, he, he, he fulfilled the, the promise that Pedro Baptista and that Gustavo Avila and that Juan Arias had in him. And that's all you can expect a horse to do. That, uh, yeah, that concluded probably one of the most remarkable stories in, in Kentucky Derby history. That, that, if that happened today, I mean, everybody would be crying foul. Nobody would have believed it, you know, that with the, with the, the Mechanical issues, getting the horse here, the sickness, and you know the the foot issues. I mean, it's just yeah. an improbable story on so many levels, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it really was. And you know, he he died early on in Venezuela, and there was always some suspicion, particularly on uh, Juan Arias's part, that he was poisoned. Oh. And there, there was no confirmation of this at all, but he, he argued that it had something to do with insurance and a betting coup and that there, there was not everything was above board about the horse's death. But I, I want to read something to you from the racing form after he died. This is from Joe Hirsch, who was one of my favorite writers. He was talking about Canyon Arrow and he said, Joe said, on Monday, he was found dead in his stall. Through all his life, nothing came easy for him. He was tested to the limit time and again. He didn't pass every test, but his courage was never at fault when he missed. The wire service from Caracas said that he died of a heart attack. That couldn't have been correct. There never was anything wrong with Kenyon Arrow's heart. I think that sums up the horse's life. Mm-hmm. He, he tried. He okay. always tried. How did the people in Venezuela, did they view the horse as a folk hero? I mean... How did they how did they receive? I mean, this guy went to the States and beat the big boys. I mean, was he was he regarded down there as as a legend? He there was partying in the streets. 
<laughs> you know, and literally partying in the streets for days. He was a national hero, and he he meant a lot to the Venezuelan people. He meant a lot to racing in Venezuela. You know, it, it added to the credibility of the the sport there. Did American sports writers start to warm up to him after after the Derby? After, when did he start to get the respect here? Uh, did it take the Preakness win? It, it took the Preakness win because they were still thinking he was a fluke. They, they said the, the Derby field was terrible and that one of the terrible horses happened to win. The fact that he won the Derby in, or the Preakness in a very good time suggested, well, hey, hey, wait a minute, maybe this horse is better than we thought. What does Canyon Arrow mean? Uh, is, is there a translation that we're not aware of? Or? There are different translations. The one that I came across that seemed to be the, the best fit, according to uh, to one of the, the people who were involved, a, a filmmaker named uh, Sal, was going to – Canyon Arrow was a, a, a kind of a street band oh, in wow. Venezuela. And the, the music it was kind of like a mariachi band, but their their music was Canadero music, and Don Pedro loved that kind of music, and that, that's where it came from. Uh, CC, could this happen again in this era of the point system, and you know the big breeders and such? Could this happen again, CC? No, no chance, because no. Uh, unless you unless you race in Dubai or or Japan or you know one of those road to the Derby races in England, that's that's the only no. way, right? You, know, you you can't just drop in at Churchill Downs and say, I want to run in the Derby anymore. Right. Yeah. We've had situations like that in the past, right? See, Mr. Remember Mr. Frisky? Uh, God, that was, was yeah. that the 90s, late he, 90s. He raced in California during his three-year-old year. But he came from, Milt, help me out, to, was that Panama or? Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. Yeah. yeah. And he ran it respectably well, as I recall. In the I don't Maybe remember where he finished, but he, he he wasn't an embarrassment. He was yeah. the favorite, as I recall. I think he was the first or second choice because uh, I think he had won the Santa Anita Derby prior to that. That's true. That's true, yeah. yes. All right, Mr. Toby, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. This is a fantastic story. We can find your book on Amazon, uh, all of your books, uh, the, even the, uh, the the Dancer's Image and the, and the Newer and uh, your, your tale about Ruffian and uh, Shergar. Uh, before you go, are you working on any other projects right now? Yeah, I, I am actually. Um, I've just finished, or almost finished, the, between the pandemic and every all the, the research facilities being closed, I lost a good bit of time on this. But I'm, I'm working on a social history of performance-enhancing drugs, going, oh, starting okay. about 1890. Okay. 1890? Really? Yeah. When do you foresee that coming out? With, with luck, uh, maybe in the spring of 2023. Okay. It's going to be a while. Uh, now, you, you, these horses that you, you've done all these uh, books on these horses, is there anyone that you're most attached to, a favorite you have of the of Noor or, or Canyon Arrow or Dancer's Image? Is there a favorite of yours that's someone's a little closer to your heart than the rest? The Dancer's Image book particularly it was the first of, of this trilogy that I did for the History Press about, you know, Dancer's Image and Noor and uh, Canyon Arrow. But the 68 Derby was also the first Derby I attended in person. And how many has it been since? How many have you been? I was a freshman in college at Center, and a group of us just went to the Derby and stood out in the infield under a parachute 
a tent made out of a parachute. So, yeah, I've, I've always wondered about the story. Yeah, how many have you been to now? Oh, gosh, I don't know. That was the – there was a break from there. Then I was at the Blood Horse for 12 years, and I've been back once since. Yeah, I, oh. once you've gone as a, a media person, going as a civilian isn't much fun. Yeah, I can understand <laughs> that. You've lived a good life, haven't you? I have indeed. <laughs> Who do you, do you have a, have you followed it this year? Is there somebody you, you have your eye on this year? I'm sorry, go say again. Yeah, have you followed the Derby Trail much this year? Is there a horse that you like for the upcoming Derby that we have in a few weeks? Yeah, I like Epicenter. Who doesn't? Yeah, he's, he's gonna be yeah. tough to beat. Yeah, I'm with you there. Maybe he'll get a book down the road if he can do something special never, here. What do you think? You never know. Yeah, you never know. All right, well, it's been great having you on, Milt CC. Yeah, absolutely, Milt. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, this has been a, a real blast uh, having you on to talk about uh, Canyon Arrow the second, one of my favorite derby stories. Good luck to you on your new venture, and uh, and hopefully we'll uh, see each other down the road. Yeah, anytime. I've, I've enjoyed the the visit. Yeah, right. we'd like to we'd like to have you back on, Milt. Absolutely. I'd love to be on. This is great fun. All right, thank you, Milton. Okay, take care. All right, that was Milton Toby, a Kentucky native. We were glad to have him on to tell the story of Canyon Arrow the second. It's it's good to have. No, it's great to have, you know. We feel like we're like I mentioned during a pod talking to Milton, but like we're pseudo historians. It's great to have a true historian, right? Someone who's passionate about uh, the old school horses. You know, just like old school baseball is awesome to listen to, to go through all the uh, uh, all the old timers and stuff. It's great to hear the, the the older stories about these guys, isn't it? I, I, again. The Canyon Arrow story is one that eluded me. I did not know that. Not that I knew some stuff. I think about that taking place in 2022 with Twitter. Oh, God. They would have run that trainer out on a rail. And, yeah, you know, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And, uh, well, first of all, yeah, he'd have sold the, the horse to, uh, or the, the, the horse would have been syndicated and had 45 different owners. China Horse Club would have been on him, Windstar and, um, uh, human, yeah. And then, uh, we'd never had this great story, you know. It, yeah. And then we had, the had Tom Toucher and <laughs> yeah, the pick five, is he my pick five single? Is he, you know, is he over the top? Is he blah, blah, blah. You know, with the, the whole arguing about things on Mondays and Tuesdays for the sake of arguing about something, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 I thought it was refreshing to hear. And I'm anxious to read the other, the other books were about Ruffian, correct? Noor. Ruffian, Noor. Dancer's Image. Shergar. That, that, Shergar, that's a story that I don't know a whole lot about, but that, that, Me either. that's the horse that was kidnapped, right? I believe you're right. And he was kidnapped by somebody in Ireland. Maybe it was the IRA or was involved in that or something like that. And then uh, he never did turn up again. So that, that, I think the Aga Khan owned the horse. And I, yeah, I'm not real familiar with the story, but I know it, uh, fairly interesting. So that, that's a book I got to read. So sounds like his whole it sounds like all his work is fascinating. And he mentioned that it's about that he writes for the people kind of like us and a lot of people that listen to this program and smarter people who don't listen to this program. Um, it sounds like he writes people who kind of know the story, but they don't think they don't know the story like they think they know the story. It sounds like he writes those, those books, as he said, with those people in mind. And looks like I need to pick up on my reading. If I could, had to compare his knowledge to somebody I know, I would compare his knowledge of uh, the history of horse racing to that of Brandon Jaggers and his knowledge of pick three wagering. <laughs> very, very similar. Very similar. Very I agree similar. with that. You got your plug for the day, Jaggers. So 
this coming weekend at Keeneland Friday is the Double Dog Dare Stakes. That's a uh, uh, kind of a minor stakes, but it's got a three hundred thousand dollar purse this year. Miles, not really. Dirt, Phillies and Mares. It's uh, yeah. Uh, I think they're thankful, but the uh, the the casino at the Red Mile is doing as well as it is because that's a uh, uh, used to be a, just a, like I said a minor stakes back in the day, but now it's a it's a, carries a big purse. And then Saturday is the three hundred fifty thousand dollar Elkhorn Stakes, a mile and a half on the turf, and the three hundred thousand dollar Ben Ally. And we want to give a shout-out to our friend Greg Holloway and his beautiful beard. As <laughs> we remember, Dubious Miss won the Ben Ally about 10 or ten to 12 years ago. And I had totally forgotten about that. And he, he reminded me of that over the weekend. But, uh, yeah, Dubious Miss has won this race. I bet they wish he'd won it uh, with this purse at $300,000. Yeah. That's, a, that's a heck of a heck of a skin to play for. On hey, Saturday. can I give you the winner of the Elkhorn real quick? Can we give the winner of the Elkhorn? Sure. I have no idea. I, if whoever's 17 to one, you talk about a race I have no opinion on annually. That is the epitome of pass or just pick a crazy shot. I am not good at that stuff. Do you remember the horse? I think his name was Dramedy. Yes. Yeah, Dramedy got on the lead and like, I think they opened, maybe him and another horse opened up like 10, 12, 15 links on the rest of the field and they're coming down the stretch and, Kurt Becker's calling the race. Dramedy's still on the lead. And I think Becker chuckled a little bit. He just couldn't believe that the horse was still holding on. I think the horse held on the wind by a nose. I think you're right. If you get a chance, go back and watch that on YouTube. That was, uh, it's kind of funny. It wasn't funny at the time because I didn't have the horse, but, uh, he was big. Elkhorn. Yeah. Elkhorn and Sycamore. Pff, whatever. Don't ask me. I could, I'll never pick the winner yeah. of the race. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what I am looking forward to. Uh, well, first of all, you got night racing coming to Churchill here in a couple of weeks, right? That's going to be a lot of fun. That, that's a good way to kick off. Like, I'm not big into the Thurby thing, but I do like the night racing, and that kicks off. And then there's a Mike Lennox. You know, you know how much I love fish, right? And, you know, I'm a fish South Bend guy. Fish and beer and horse. Well, they're doing the, uh, the thing they did last year. It's a really wonderful event they do out there at Mike Lennox, uh, the Churchill guys or WHAS or whomever. But uh, you get fish, beer, talking about horse racing on the radio and stuff. Man, that's that's all me. You remember last year how cold it was, how the wind came in? It was insane. It was a beautiful day. It was up perfect. until about what nine thirty, nine o'clock, eight thirty, whatever time it started to get dark, and it, my goodness, it got cold. The temperature dropped like thirty degrees. I think as soon as Ed started talking, I don't know what it was. Ooh. Right? Yeah, I think <laughs> right. right. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I love Mike Lanes. I mean, that's that's just who I am and stuff. So, all right. Anyway, let's wrap it up here. On behalf of Alan Schneider and Brandon Jaggers, wherever he may be. And, of course, our special guest tonight, Milton Toby. This is CZ Broadus reminding you that gambling money ain't got no home.